Let us pray. Direct us, O Lord, in all our doings with your most gracious favor, and further us with your continual help, that in all our works begun, continued, and ended in you, we may glorify your holy name, and finally, through your mercy, obtain everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. We are going to move on in the Catechism to this section on Holy Communion, page 58. We finally arrived at this, this, uh, this portion of the Catechism. Um, okay, so the Catechism deals with the sacraments as a whole, uh, all seven of them, which I, I keep saying all seven because I just want you to get the point that like there are seven sacraments. Uh, are, is there a difference between baptism and the Eucharist and the rest of them? You bet there is. Uh, and the difference has to do with generally necessary for salvation. This is the, the language of the 1662 Catechism. Um, it's also the language of the Articles. I mean, it's just, it's just replete because the reality of it is that one of the things that uh, happens in the English Reformation, and indeed the Reformation as a whole, is this pushback. Like, can you require as necessary for salvation what is not required in Scripture? And what's the answer? Nine, you cannot. <laughs> Actually, I'm quoting Martin Luther when I say nine. <laughs> um, and so the, the, you know, and, and people believe this, right? They, they really did believe that, hey, look, you know, if you want to be saved and you're dying, you know, you better receive anointing of the sick or you're going to hell. Which, is that in Scripture? No. Or, or you have to make your confession once a year or you'll die in a state of mortal sin because you didn't make your confession every year and therefore you'll go to hell. It's like, is that in Scripture? No. So what happens in the Reformation is there's this removal of a kind of late medieval veneer off of things. Now, in some ways that's a good thing, right? In other ways it's, it's not so good. One of the ways that it's not so good is the introduction of um, what is essentially called nominalism uh, to the West, and uh, nominalism is a very complex idea, but it's, it's the very basis of secularism, basically. Um, it's this uh, idea that everything in creation should have a name. That's what it is. Uh, that's all it is. It can't be more than that. There's no kind of eternal forms out there waiting behind the wings. There's no Wizard of Oz. There's none of that stuff, right? It's just this and that. <laughs> and the problem with that is that that's actually a uh, kind of uh, metaphysics that a metaphysic that is at odds with the church's sacramental teaching and tradition. So there's part of the issue, right? Is that look, I mean, if if this is just a pew, right? Because of how it's shaped in wood, then that's all it is, right? It's it's nominalism kind of sets the ground for materialism, basically. It's things are things, that's what they are, that's what we call them, that's what we name them, uh, and that's it. But for Christians, we believe there's quite, there's quite a deal more to the universe than that. Um, and, and, and it was really an, overflow, an overthrowing of classical categories. Um, and of course, classical categories were all you had in the time of Scripture. Um, you had this understanding that a thing actually has a greater existence beyond what you can see and touch and taste and feel. Okay, now that just lays part of the groundwork for thinking about the Eucharist. Uh, so let's let's get started. Question one hundred thirty-one: Why did Christ institute the sacrament of Holy Communion? He instituted it for the continual remembrance of the sacrifice of His atoning death and to convey the benefits of that sacrifice to us. I love this answer because it doesn't get into the weeds of uh, of discourse on this and what is it and what you know. It's it's it asks the question why first. Okay, now I think this is really important. It's like if you know why something happened or why God did something, then you'll understand all the rest. So why did Christ institute the sacrament of Holy Communion? Well, first, it's for a continual remembrance of the sacrifice of His atoning death. Okay, so. Um, it's understood in Scripture that this, um, this will be kept, right, forever until the last day. Um, it's understood that this will uh, be the case for the church literally until Jesus comes back. Okay. That's, you, you celebrate the Eucharist in anticipation of his return. You celebrate it looking forward to his return. You celebrate it with expectation of his return, um, but you also celebrate it looking back uh, to the cross. 
Now, there's this really important question, which is continual remembrance. Jesus says, you know, do this in remembrance of me. And it's a really interesting turn of a Greek phrase because the actual Greek word is um, anakinosis. Do this in, um, in knowing me again would be one way to put it. Um, so what happens after Jesus rises from the dead and 40 days later, what does he do? He goes, he ascends to the, to the Father. Okay. Well, how do you know Jesus again in the way that you knew him before, right? Because so, again, it's not, you will know me, no, it's, you will know me again. So the understanding is the, the, the apostles, the disciples have already known Jesus, right? And they will know him again in this way. Um, so it's to say they, they know him again um, in that sacramental way, in that Eucharistic way. Um, so it's a continual remembrance. Now, we get this word, remembrance. We, we think about it as good little nominalists, right? Oh, I remember that. I remember that act in history. Oh, I remember this. I remember that. It's, it's all that kind of thing. Um, materialists remember something as it was or as it is, right? Um, but there's not this sense of ex expectant looking forward and looking backward at the same time kind of remembrance. Um, the best kind of current phrase that I can think about for this kind of remembrance is, uh, is the, uh, the, the, the motto of, uh, of Francophone Quebec. Do you know what it is? In French, it's Je me souvenir, which means I will remember. <laughs> okay, so what is it? It's an active remembering of my French heritage. I can, if you've never been to Quebec, you know, it's hard to imagine, but you'll hear French being spoken all over the place. It's very normal. And in fact, you have, if you want to emigrate to Quebec, you have to learn French and take a French exam that native French speakers often can't pass, okay? Because they're brutally Francophonic. They, they, and they say it as, I will remember. Well, what are they remembering? Just that their people were once French? No, 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 no. They mean it in a much greater way. It's, I remember my culture, I remember who I am, I remember what my culture will be, I remember that we are not going to uh, give any ground to English, right, as a language, right? We are going to be French, right? Um, that's the idea. Um, to, so to be Quebecois is to maintain those distinctly French cultures in a foreign land, okay? Well, what's going on in the Eucharist? Like, I think that's, a, that's probably about as good as it gets. It's, it's maintaining this um, Christian life in the midst of a foreign land. Right? It's maintaining this, this, this meal in Christ. That's one way to think about it. Um, but also, at the end of this, now, look, I don't think there's anybody, else, any Christian alive who could disagree with that first statement. I think that's pretty basic, pretty straightforward in Scripture. It's probably a little bit more elevated remembrance than what some people think just on a face view. But it's the second part that's controversial, and I want to talk about it, and to convey the benefits of that sacrifice to us. So what are the benefits of Christ's atoning death and sacrifice? Just start naming them. What is it? Salvation, right? New life. What else? Yeah, sure, you can say presence, you can say grace, right? You can say union with Christ. See, all those things are there, right? I think that when we think about the benefits of, of Christ's atoning death in a minimal way, we'll say something like, oh, he died for me, and isn't that great? Like, okay, that's true, but also, what? He died so that I could be with him. He died so that um, I could be with him again. Um. In the Anglican view of the Eucharist, the Eucharist is a participation in the body and blood of Christ. And the reason for that is, that's what Paul says, right? It's quite simple. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, the, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The, the, the bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Okay. Um, so it is participation. Now, I said this last week, participation is huge in ancient metaphysics. It's absolutely massive. 
Okay, let me explain to you what I mean. In a materialist, nominalist world, this pew, let's get away from pew, let's look at book, okay? So <laughs> I say, I say, let's look at book. Did I say, let's look at this book? No, I said, let's look at book. What is book? <laughs> is, is there such a thing as bookiness? Yeah, I think so. Like, we all agree that, that there is such a thing that is a book and so, such a thing that is not, right? Like, as much as people try to make this a book, it is not a book, okay? Not a book. This is a book, right? Now, now, now hold your horses because it gets a little crazy, right? So what? Like, for the materialist, there's just this. There's just this book. That's all that's there is this book. That's it, okay? So fine. But think about it from an ancient perspective, which is that this book actually participates in a category of something floating out beyond the skies or maybe just right around the corner that is bookness, bookiness, book, right? Okay, you got it? This participates in that. Okay, would you agree? I mean, I think it's fairly straightforward, right, as a, as a, as a category, right, that, that the reason we call this a book is because it's more than just what it is. It's, it's a book. Um, and that's why we use, I mean, this is the way English works. It's, it's a book, right? It, it, is, it is a part of the general category of books. Okay? So participation matters. And, and when Paul uses this language, he is using it in a replete classical tradition uh, throughout the Greek-speaking world. Of the Greek word is, it's, um, oh goodness, now, it is, uh, it is um, koinonia, okay? So being as one, right? Now, that's even taking it a little bit further than the normal word for participation, um, but, but he does it for a reason, which is this, that in his understanding, this participation in the body of, in body of blood of Christ is of such quality that it is a being as one with. It's not simply participating in the category. It is being one with Christ. Um, so there you have it, the benefits of that sacrifice. Um, well, think about, think about the, the benefits of Christ's atoning death in greater detail. Right? Consider it from the, from the perspective of the Old Testament. Okay? Paul does this at certain points. Okay, so let's think about priesthood for a moment. In the Old Testament, is a priest detached from the people or are they partners in the altar? Well, Paul says they're partners in the altar, right? That word partnership is actually very, very close akin to koinonia. It, it speaks of that they can't actually be distinct, the priest and the people, because they're one. Now, how are they one? Well, they're ontologically one, right? Because they're all human beings. It's just that priest is a category of human being, right? And we kind of we talk like this, right? So um, another example would be, um, think, about, uh, think about why you sacrifice in the Old Testament. Okay, just, just in a very basic sense. Think about it in the ancient world. Just don't even think about it biblically. Just think, why would I sacrifice an animal? Yeah, let's just talk about it from appeasement, right? It's I've done something to tick the gods off, okay? They're mad at me, so what do I have to give them? Yeah, the most sacred thing in the world, which is blood. And if you don't believe me that blood's the most sacred thing in the world, if I were to cut my hand open and drip all over the floor, you'd go, because <gasps> you know it's sacred, right? You're like, oh, that's very sacred. Like, you can't drip blood all over the church floor. It's holy, Right, and you would you'd have a you'd have a fit about it, right? Of course you would, and then you'd start to think about like, oh no, like he if he's if he's got any kind of disease, and I touch that blood, I might get it, right? There's all of this like, and there's an ick factor, right, to blood. Of course there is. Um, it's why it's why gory scenes unsettle us because we can't just think about oh look. There's like human meat on the, on, on the screen. And like, isn't that interesting and blah, blah. No, no, you can't do that. Because you come face to face with your own mortality, right? You know that there's something greater going on here than seeing flesh and blood. Right? Um, 
It's the same kind of instinct that drives sacrifice in the ancient world, and even today. And there are people who sacrifice animals today. Um, uh, so consider it from that perspective, which is that, hey, like this is sacred, this is big. Uh, uh, all guilt has to be expiated in some way, right? So like, consider it this way. When you think about criminals before a judge, what's gonna have to happen to set this right, to make it just, to make things right? If the person, assuming the person's guilty, what has to happen? I mean, does a judge care about repentance in the secular sense? <laughs> well, sure, sure. In terms of parole, they care about repentance, but not not sentencing. Like, right? No, your life, right? That's why we say life in prison, life. Or uh, two years of your life, or four years of your life, or eight years of your life, or 10 years of your life. Like, that's how we talk about it, right? Because the, the expiation required for the crime is either not possible, right? Like restitution in the, in the Old Testament, restitution is the idea, right? But there has to be something more than that, right? So if my, if my ox gores your ox with his horns, because I neglected to cut them back, I not only have to replace your ox, but I have to kill mine. <laughs> Why? Can't I just restore your ox? You see, there's guilt that has to be expiated in some way. Okay, it doesn't just sort of sit there. It's got to go. You got to take care of it. Okay, um, and so this is the idea in in scriptures that, look, we've all done something so terrible that we can't possibly make up for it. In fact, we bear a mark of sin that's so bad that even if you didn't really do anything bad, you're still guilty. Like, <laughs> like, like it doesn't matter um, because you're you are, and I love what, you know, Martin Luther says, it's, it, human life is, is the, is the mesa damnata. It's a damned mass. You can't avoid it. Um, so, so what has to happen? Well, one who is one with you and one with God has to die. That's basically it. Um, to bring atonement, right? To stand in the, in the, in the middle of the gap between God and man and die. Um, this is also related directly to the language of covenant. So uh, Eucharistic theology is very much tied to the understanding of covenant. So like in a covenant, what happens? Hmm. Fairly simple, right? It goes something like this. Let's say David and I are neighbors. We're not neighbors, but we could be, and that would be really nice. And, uh, and we have two very different kinds of land. He's got good grazing land in the summer. I've got great grazing land in the winter. He comes to me right about this time of year and says, hey, look, my sheep are going to die if they don't get something to eat. And I say, well, I could do something about that. But you have to tell me that, they, that my sheep can graze on your land in the summer. Okay, so what do we do? We make a covenant, right? And, and it's so deep that his daughters marry my sons, and my sons marry his daughters, right? And I can walk across the boundaries between our lands freely because essentially we become the same person we're joined together, okay? Um, a great, a great uh, word for, the coven for covenants in the Old Testament is it's, it's an exchange of persons. Like, I become his, he becomes mine. That's just how it is. And God uses this language in the Old Testament. Everything that I have is yours. Everything that you have is mine, okay? So that's great, right? But something else is there in that, Abraham, in that covenant with Abraham that's, that's difficult to get over, right? Which is, it's several, one is you have to be a child of Abraham in the physical sense in order to participate in that covenant. You, you can't just sort of be incorporated in. It's exclusive. The other problem is that, um, well, if you break it, what happens? <laughs> You're dead. That's basically it, right? So if you break a covenant in the Old, in the old Testament, in the Old World, what happens? Well, and this is made this is made abundantly clear by what happens when Abraham is offered the sacrifice, offered the covenant. Right? God tells him, "Hey, go go take a bunch of animals, cut them in half, and lay them out, 
And then God takes a, a burning lamppost and kind of encircles them in the figure eight. Well, Abraham's kind of in a deep sleep. And he wakes him up and says, hey, everything I've got, is your, everything I have is yours, everything you have is mine. We've, we've started a covenant. Um, everything you can see from this spot belongs to you now. Okay. Well, what's the statement with the animals? It's something like, whatever happened to the animal will happen to you should you break the covenant. You're dead. Okay. Oh, that's, that's, that's a terrible burden. Okay. Well, so how do you end a covenant? So this is a great one. David and I have entered into a covenant, and I break the covenant. Maybe I kill one of your sons as they try to take the sheep onto my land in the, sun, in the winter, right? Uh, just because I'm angry, right? Well, what do you say? You say, covenant done. And then you invade my house, and you take all that belongs to me. Right? Which you're legally entitled to because that's what happens when you break a covenant. Like, I get it all. <laughs> it belongs to me. Or you could just say, eh, maybe we should just go back to the way things were before. Okay. Well, look, the reality of it is that in Scripture, you don't want to go back to the way things were before. You want things to get better. Um, so, and you actually want things to be fulfilled. So how do you fulfill a covenant if you're the one in the wrong? You can't. Who can fulfill the covenant? The one who's in the right. So what is it that Jesus does? He basically creates a new covenant in his flesh. That's it. That's, that's, the, that's the language that the New Testament uses for how he does this. He creates a new covenant in his flesh. Okay, which is what? Everything you have belongs to me. Everything I have belongs to you, right? It's a giving of God to man and the giving of man to God. Okay. Um, and what is everything that God has in one simple, easily stated way. Himself, right? Himself. Like if God doesn't give us himself, then what good is it? Would be a one way to put it. Okay, so that, that's where all those things like union with Christ, all those things are really important categories. Um, and they're important categories in the New Testament, right? Uh, to belong to Christ, to be in Christ, to be all those things has is, is what has to happen for our salvation. Um, and I think I say this because it exposes a weakness in how most American Christians see salvation. Because most of the time the account is like, hey, uh, so I, I believe this now, it isn't that cool. Like, I believe that Jesus died for my sins, and I believe that I'm going to have eternal life with him. Isn't that cool? And it's like, yeah, but there's a whole lot more going on, right? There's so much more going on. Um, participation is where it's at when you think about salvation. I'll just say that. Okay, we good so far? Okay. So it's to convey the benefits of that sacrifice. So it conveys union, participation within Christ. Um, and, and this is what, you know, this is what Jesus is getting at in John chapter 6. Unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you can have no what? Life within you. Because where's life? Well, in the Gospel of John, it's really clear. It's in the prologue. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. Okay? So do you see how all this goes? It's, it's very, 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 um, it's, I wouldn't say it's simple, but it's, it's made very explicit in ways that aren't clear to us very early on. Okay? All right. So what is the outward and visible sign in Holy Communion? The visible sign is bread and wine, which Christ commands us to receive. Do you agree with that? Like Christ commands us to receive it, right? Um, do this in remembrance of me. Pretty clear command, right? Um, and I love what Chesterton says. Has ever a command been more kept than this one? And he says, and he goes on this like lovely historical kind of like <laughs> traipse through history <laughs> and all the times that the Eucharist was celebrated, right? On the beaches of Normandy and all these things. It's wonderful. It's great. Um, actually, He's talking about First World War, but anyway, it's fun. Uh, and, and all of this is to say that the church has kept this one thing for the entire time. Um, one of the great experiences that I've had as a Christian has been to visit Christians throughout the world. Um, 
two years ago, I was in northern Iraq with two, two members of Christ Church. And, and what did we do on Sunday morning? We went to church with the, with the church of the East, a church that speaks Aramaic, and their liturgy is in Aramaic, the language of Jesus, okay? And it's wild. But there's no mistaking what they're doing. It's obvious, right? That makes sense. You, you can barely understand things, but it makes sense, right? Um, that part makes sense, what they're doing there. All right, um, and that happens throughout the world. I mean, I've, 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 I've celebrated the Eucharist in Rwanda. I've been in South America, I mean, all over the place. Um, and it continues to just be like this singular thing that no matter what the language, no matter what's going this is what happens. This is what we do as Christians. All right. Um, in, in fact, as a historical note, you may have said, well, I, we didn't do that in my church growing up, maybe once a month or maybe once every... You know, once on a blue moon. Uh, fine. Um, that is actually a particularly American way of being the church. It, it all goes back to uh, uh, the Great Awakenings when, uh, when you wanted to be as multi-denominational as possible and what becomes a, dif- a big difference among Christians? That question. So what do you do? Just take it off the table. Literally take it off the table. Okay. Well, okay, I get it. But that actually fundamentally alters your perception of what salvation is, what the faith is. When, you, when your main evangelistic thing in the, second, in the Great Awakenings is just come to believe and acknowledge, and there's not this call to communion. Okay. What is the inward gift signified? The inward gift signified is the body and blood of Christ, which are truly taken and received in the Lord's Supper by faith. Now, there's a lot going on here, and I want to kind of break it down. So every sacrament has an outward invisible sign, right, and an inward and spiritual grace. In the Eucharist, you have the outward invisible sign being bread and wine, okay? Don't say bread and grape juice, because, you know, there's no such thing, okay? Like, <laughs> I'm just going to say that. Like, if you leave grape juice out and without refrigeration, what happens? It's wine. Like, that's how you drink grape juice in the ancient world. You ferment it, and you drink it. Like, it's lovely. Um, and you get fermented wine within a few days, actually. Um, that's what new wine is. It's very good. Um, especially Thanksgiving turkey, of all things. All right. Uh, have you ever bought that? You know, you'll see it at the grocery store. It's, it's, a, it's Beaujolais Nouveau. That's new wine. Um, and, and the reason is, you know, it's... it's it's fresh off the vines from that season in France. They pick it in September, they crush it, they ferment it, they bottle it, and they get it to you by Thanksgiving. Right? That's what it is. It's new wine. Um, so all of this is just to say, that's what wine, you know, it's, it's wine. It's not grape juice, it's wine. Okay, so we got that so far. That's the outward invisible sign. The inward gift or the inward grace, okay, gift and grace are the same word signified, and by the way, signified doesn't simply mean as a sign like how we modern people think about a sign, because if you're a modernist, what's a sign? A sign. It's an image that doesn't participate in what it signs forth, right? It's completely disconnected. Um, But if you're to kind of adopt a, you know, pre-modern mindset, you'll say like, oh, look, it's a sign. Like, it actually participates in the thing that it's signing forth kind of fun. So the, the inward gift signified is the body and blood of Christ, which are truly taken and received in the Lord's Supper by faith. Okay, so let's, let's use this. So we know what the body and blood of Christ is, right? Or at least we think we know. Uh, body and blood of Christ, okay, cool. Like the same blood which was shed on Calvary, right? Same body which was crucified. We can also take that to mean the same body which rose again. It's a kind of a mystical body, yeah? Like it's this body wherein the disciples recognize him in the breaking of bread on the road to Emmaus, after they've been on the road to Emmaus anyway. Okay, so we kind of got that. Like, whatever the body and blood of Christ is, it's super mysterious and also risen. So that's interesting, right? So we've got all that going on. But then we talk about it being truly taken and received. So what does truly denote? 
What's that? Yeah, truly, in the deepest possible sense. Like, when we say taken and received, we mean taken and received, right? It's pure and simple. Um, so I would even use the word, like, not virtual, right? Like, I don't know what virtual reality is, but it's not reality, okay? <laughs> like, it's fairly simple, fairly straightforward, okay? At least I would think so. Um, taken. So what do we mean, taken? Yeah, you, you take it, right? Um, yeah, Jesus even commands you, take, eat, right? Um, you're to take it. Um, uh, meaning that, uh, that you've got you've to reach out. You, you've got to decide to do it, okay? And received, meaning that it's a gift. That's the most simple way to put it. Okay, in the Lord's Supper, and how do you take and receive? By faith. Okay, so this is, this is the key to understanding Anglican Eucharistic theology. How do you take and receive the body and blood of Christ? With your tongue? Is there another way? Well, yeah, there is. There's a deeper way, right? So by faith, right? Um, so I would actually say this, that, uh, that uh, faith is, um, well, let's just go straight to Scripture. What, is, what does the letter to the Hebrews say about faith? Faith is the... It's like the expectation of things hoped for, the, the, the conviction of things not seen, okay? So faith is how we believe and know that things which are not seen are what? Real, yeah, okay. So this, this the, the, the uh, I might just put it like the aptitude, which is probably a bad word, but aptitude of faith. Like the, the faith is the means by which we receive, okay? Now, in the, the English reformers are really, it's funny because they disagree about what this means to receive by faith. Some of them say, uh, well, if you don't have faith, you don't get any, okay? Okay, I, and by and large, I agree with that, right? That, that um, you know, if you, if you don't have faith, how can you possibly receive this gift? Well, how do you have faith? How do you do that? It's a gift too, right? So like, this is where it gets very, very strange, right? Um, but not only that, but, but look at this. Like, how did the disciples perceive the risen body of Christ, which is right in front of them? Well, with their eyes, yeah, fine. Sure. Isn't there a greater seeing, though, involved here? Yeah, it's the, it's the seeing by faith that they have, right? So, so here's the thing. Like, I think if the receiving of the Eucharist is only in a physical sense, only in a bodily manner, it's not sufficient, right? Because the body of Christ is uh, spiritual. Okay, only spiritual? No, of course not, right? Like, <laughs> this, is what, this is what so frustrates me about American reads of, of, of Scripture, We'll read, like, it is sown a perishable body, a perishable body it is raised an imperishable body, it is sown a physical body, which is actually really terrible, it's just a terrible translation. Um, if you ever want fun of this, go talk to Dr. Bur- Dr. Burris at, at Baylor and he'll set you straight, right? Uh, it, it, actually, it actually means, like, <laughs> it is sown a bodily body, <laughs> okay, body body, <laughs> it is raised a... A pneumatic body would be the way to put it, actually. That would be, that's the actual word. So it's raised a spiritual body. Does this mean that it's not bodily anymore? No. Because, look, I stand before you today and say, we believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. It's just that his body has been transformed to conform to the spiritual. Still physical, yes? But not virtual, right? A real body. Um, conforming to that of the, to the nature of a spirit. We'll put it that way. Okay, so so how do you receive the spiritual presence of Christ, which is not non bodily, by the way, <laughs> because of that? 
It's the only way you can do it. By faith. Do you see how that works? Okay. Now, can you receive by faith the body and blood of Christ without receiving the Eucharist? Sure. Okay, sure. And in fact, we learned a big lesson in that in COVID. It was, now we have to do spiritual communion, which means that you, you ask Jesus to give you his body and blood without the bread and wine, without the sacramental means of doing so. Okay, wild. But they are, they are separate categories. So does that help you to see it kind of somewhat clearly or clear as mud? Okay, this is, this is, this is where Anglicans come down. I know, it's, I know it's a lot of like data to process, but you'll see where it's going, okay? Let's keep moving. Uh, what benefits do you receive through partaking of the sacrament? As my body is nourished by the bread and wine, my soul is strengthened by the body and blood of Christ. I receive God's forgiveness, and I am renewed in the love and unity of the body of Christ, the church. Okay, so there's a lot going on here. So we do not contest as Anglicans that the body is nourished by bread and wine in the Eucharist, okay? No, it is, right? If I drink too much out of the chalice, I will get drunk. And on occasion, the altar guild puts too much wine in the chalice, and that's why I'm occasionally jolly in the back of the church is because I had to finish that stuff, okay? So I'm just letting you in on a little secret. That's what I have to do, and it's not that I love being drunk. It's that that's just what I have to do, okay? And it's wine, right? It is. It is, okay? But saying that it's wine is like saying, it's like, it's like this. It's like saying, that over there, that over there, that is Taylor's body. Yeah, that's Taylor's body. Where is the real Taylor? <laughs> Heck if I know. Probably floating in the ether somewhere. Maybe he's with God. <laughs> Do you see how insane that is? Like, it's, it's, of course, when you shake Taylor's hand, you're shaking his hand. You're also shaking Taylor, <laughs> okay? You can't get out of that, <laughs> right? So here's my mind-melting philosophical thought for the day, which is quite fun. The whole point of the Eucharist is you can't separate uh, form and substance. There's no way to. Right? You, 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 re, you retain everything that bread and wine are, right? including the nutritional value, right? obviously. But you also receive what it is now, which is the body and blood of Christ. My soul is strengthened by the body and blood of Christ. Okay, so you're good so far? All right. I receive God's forgiveness. Okay, so what are the benef- what's one of the benefits of Christ's atoning death? <laughs> forgiveness, Okay. So you receive forgiveness in the Eucharist, okay? That's a good thing to know, right? I think that we have to remember that. Um, but you might say, well, okay, but what, how, how do I deal with the fact that you don't let people who are persisting in unrepentant sin receive communion? Because if you want forgiveness, what do you have to do? You have to go get it by faith, right? You have to go, like, ask God for it, right? Um, but I'd put it even in, more, in a deeper sense, which is this. There are sins which dog every last stinking one of us, every one of us. There are sins which we do not want, right? I know I'm mean to the darn dog, right? I know it. I know that when she's sitting in her kennel and she's screaming her head off at like one in the morning, I'm just angry at the dog. And the dog's a dog, okay? Like, I know that I shouldn't, you know, get angry with her but I do, okay? Do I like it? No. Is there forgiveness offered in union with the body and blood of Christ for that? Yes. So what I'm saying is like, this is the sort of stuff that you really need to be worried about is when it's like, I know that I get angry with the dog. I like being angry with the dog. I know that it's probably wrong to kick the dog, but I'm gonna keep doing it because I like it. Okay, that's when you need to ask yourself, like, why am I really doing this? Why am I really coming to communion? You see the point? So, like, what, I, what I'd say to you is, uh, that's when you need something a little stronger, right? And it's not to say there's anything stronger than the body of Christ. It's that you probably need to, like, unburden this. There's something else going on. Um, so, it's often a, a tough thing. It's like, you know, you have to say, well, okay, yes, you receive forgiveness of sins in the Eucharist. Yes, Absolutely. 
but it's you got to be repentant. Um, and that's why you'll hear this in the call to confession during the Sunday liturgy. It's put very, very, very clearly. It's all you who earnestly repent of your sins and seek to live in love and charity with your neighbor and intend to, lead, intend to lead the new life, okay? So do you see what's going on so far? You gotta earnestly repent. Does that mean that you are uh, absolutely going to repent? No, it just means in the, in the full manner of earnesty that I can possibly muster, I'm going for it. I wanna repent, okay? All you who earnestly repent, um, golly, why am I getting off track? I know, just open it up. I know the page. Okay, so let's open it up to uh, page 112 in the Red Book. All who truly and earnestly repent. So it's got to be true repentance, it's got to be earnest repentance, and seek to live. Seek to live. Does it say live in love and charity with your neighbor? How do you do that? If you find out, let me know because I'd love to know it. But it's seek to live, okay, which is a great grace, right? It's like seek to live. Okay, well, I have to seek to live. Okay, that's good. Seek to live in love and charity with your neighbors, your kids, your wife, your neighbors, um, really anyone that you come in contact with, and intend to lead the new life, following the commandments of God and walking in his holy ways. Draw near with faith and make your humble confession to Almighty God, okay? So draw near. Now, it's funny because, you know, we say draw near, and what do you do? Well, you kind of draw near, just kind of going to kneeling, but you're not like drawing near, right? That's not happening. Do you know why that says draw near? It says draw near because in the old days of the, of the English church, that was the end of the service. Most of the time in the English church, you had anti-communion, and that's what everybody went to. And then the priest would celebrate communion up in the, chan up in the chancel. So you literally drew near. Like you'd go up the aisle to the altar. Um, okay, this is the basis of why, why many Protestants call this an altar call at the end of a service. It actually has its roots in the English communion rite, surprisingly enough. Isn't that wild? So that's what it is. It's you, you have to draw near, draw near, draw near. If that's what you want, draw near. Now, of course, you don't draw near until later, but that's okay. We just sort of like, it's a historic thing, and you sort of leave it there because it still matters, right? You're drawing near spiritually, right? You're saying, okay, that's what I want. I'm coming, okay? Does that, does that make it clear? Like, because I have all these people asking them, like, well, you know, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, get, I just get sort of angry when I'm driving, and I always get angry when I'm driving. Like, should I, should I receive communion? It's like, yes! <laughs> Like, do you like being angry? No. Okay, come. Like, do you intend to love your neighbor? Yes. Like, okay, there it is. But if you say something to me like, I am angry, I'm going to continue to be angry, I'm going to get in the car right now, and the very first person to break a traffic law, I'm going to curse them, right? Okay, well, you probably don't need to do that. There's something going on here. We've got to talk about it, okay? And usually it's like, would you please come to the church tomorrow? We need to talk, right? That's something like that, right? Okay. We, we clear as mud thus far? Okay, so I, re I receive forgiveness. I am renewed in the love and unity of the body of Christ, the church. Okay, so let's take you to another part in the prayer book. The Thanksgiving prayer on page 121. So after the Eucharist, we give thanks. And we say, Almighty, God, Almighty and ever-living God, we thank you for feeding us in these holy mysteries with the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, so far so good? Like, we've received uh, the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of Christ. And for assuring us through the sacrament of your favoring goodness towards us, which has some subclauses, right? So if you study English and language in general, you know what a subclause is. It's, it's what... What is going to be the examples of God's favor and goodness towards us? Well, there are four. Okay, you see it? Actually, it's three. 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 First, that we are true members of the mystical body of your son, which is what? The church and the body of Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Do you see what's going on here? Because Paul, Paul writes in Ephesians that we are where? First chapter, the second chapter, 
we are where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Is, is this just sort of a figure of speech? No, Paul believes this, that we are so in Christ that we are where Christ is, which is the right hand of the Father. Okay. Um, we are true members of the mystical body of your Son, the blessed company of all faithful people. It's just another way to put that. And are also heirs through hope of your everlasting kingdom. So it's actually two clauses. We are also heirs through hope of your everlasting kingdom. So the sacrament assures us that we are heirs through hope of this kingdom, this everlasting kingdom. Okay, got it? All right, so there's an assurance here, right? It's the assurance that we are, in fact, members of the body of Christ. And secondly, that being members of the body of Christ, we are heirs of eternal life and an everlasting kingdom. See it? Okay. Both of those happen in the Eucharist. Um, and you might say, well, how? How do they happen in the Eucharist? Well, I have this experience often. I hope you do too. It's like, I get, you know, I get a little spat with my wife. And I'm thinking, gosh, things are not good with us right now. Uh, and how are we going to fix this? And then you know what? We get, wake up in the next morning, big hug, big kiss. Is that good? Does that assure us that we're going to stay married probably for a little while longer at least? Yeah, that's good, right? That's a good day. That's a good, that's a good marriage thing to happen, okay? So like you say, hey, this is good. Like, now she's probably still a little bit, she's, she's still going to want to talk to you later about it, but she's, but she's thinking like, hey, he's going he's gonna to talk about it in good faith, and that's good, right? So all that's happening. To be a partaker of Christ, even in our sinful, awful state, even in our suffering, even in our pain, even in our misery, right, is an absolutely wonderful thing. Because you don't come as like the perfect Christian you want to be. You come as the Christian you are. So that's kind of neat. All right. So members of Christ and heirs. Now, this is not something that we often think about, but we should. Um, is, have any of you ever received an inheritance? So there are some. Okay, Not nearly as many as there should be, but there are some. I have, and it changed my life. Did I like it that my grandmother died? Nope. But about three months later, things got pretty nice. I'll just say that. We were able to do a lot of things that we couldn't do before. Now, on my best day, I'd say I didn't, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't, ter I was trying really hard not to be like living in expectation of that, right? I was trying really hard to not say, you know, someday grandma's going to die. And then, you know, we're going to have it made. No, because we really don't. But, you know, it was, it was enough to make a difference, right? Okay. But I would talk to my grandmother and she would say, you know what, kid, someday I'm going to leave you a lot of money. So be counting on that. Why would she say that? And those of you who have ever written a will know why you say that. I mean, I know why I say it to my kids. It's like, look, kid. Like, someday, you're going to get something. So you better learn how to be good with it. Like, you better learn how to manage that. Like, this is important. It's someday going to change your life. I'm promising you that it will. Does that make sense? And so you tell them about it, and you tell them to get ready for it. Okay? This is how the Eucharist functions eschatologically as this current inheritance in the Christian life, as well as the promise of a next one, as another one. Does that make sense? So, and, and why? I'll just answer it. I'm going to give away the whole, the whole sermon. God, why do I do this? It's, it's that the question is not what or when is the eschaton, when, what or when is the end. That's, that's a bad question for Christians to ask. Wait, in fact, Jesus dissuades us from asking those questions. We really should ask, who is the eschaton? Who is the end? It's Jesus. Okay, so in the Eucharist, we're literally preparing for our end, for the truest end we can possibly have. Um, and this is why Christians have faced, at least liturgically anyway, and in Waco we get to face whatever we want because it doesn't matter, okay? East. So, like, that's east. Okay. Um, and Christians faced east because they were facing the coming of Christ in the, in the Eucharist. That's what they were doing. Okay. Good so far? 
going to keep checking in. So we've got, we got like five minutes to wrap this up. What is required of you when you come to receive Holy Communion? I am to examine myself. Do I truly repent of my sins and intend to lead a new life in Christ? Do I have a living faith in God's mercy through Christ and remember his atoning death with a thankful heart? And have I shown love and forgiveness to all people? Okay. So self-examination prior to receiving communion is like the gem of gems. I, 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 can't, I can't emphasize this enough. Like, if you sit there and you wonder, like, hey, why, you know, I'm supposedly, like, receiving the grace of Jesus in my body, like, and my soul on a weekly basis. Why hasn't it kicked in yet? <laughs> right? Okay. I'm going to give you two answers. One is you're not examining yourself beforehand. Okay? Um, and look, everybody knows this, right? Before I go to the doctor, I make a list of things that I want, and I'm a nerd, so you can take that for whatever it's worth, but I make a list of things that I want to ask him about. Because <laughs> it's like, I don't want to waste my time, and I don't want to waste his time. So I make a list, and I say, you know, I got this mole I'm worried about on my butt. Would you take a look at it? Okay? Uh, and I'm not going to waste his time. So like I say, would you look at this? Okay? I'm examining myself so that he can examine me. Does that make sense? It's just, just an analogy, but, and it falls apart just like everything else. But do you see how it goes? Is, is you, you do the work of like saying, well, what's gone wrong? Um, do I truly repent of my sins and intend to lead a new life in Christ? Is that my intent? Okay, well, one of the great things about intent and the language of intent and philosophy is how do you show intent? It's really fun. You do the thing. Okay, so how do we know? This is fun. Like, how do we, if, if, you're, if you're ever on a jury and, and a lawyer asks you, how do you know what, is, what, the, what the criminal's intent was? Yeah, by what he did. <laughs> There's no other way, right? So it's like, well, he was on his way to like, he was definitely going to do, no, 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 no. If he was definitely going to do it, he would have already done it. So you can't, you can't tell, right? Um, that's like the age-old thing. Well, I, you know, uh, I promise, I, like, I, I was going to apologize eventually. I really intended to apologize. It's like, but you didn't, <laughs> right? So it's like, that's really helpful. It's actually better than it sounds. It sounds miserable. But it, look, how do you know that you intend to lead a new life? <laughs> You're here, yeah? That's it. You're here. You've dragged your body. Not all of you wants to be here, right? Part of me doesn't want to be here. Like, I'd rather be in bed, okay? That's fine. That's totally fine. But I'm here, right? So that counts for something, and I just say, take some comfort in that, okay? You do desire to lead a new life in Christ, but you should be reminded that that's why you're here. You're not just sort of here to see the friends. All right. Do I have a living faith in God's mercy through Christ and remember his atoning death with a thankful heart? I mean, that's, that's a good question to ask. Like, are you angry? Angry with God, angry with your neighbor? Um, have I shown love and forgiveness to all people? And it's not the question of, do I forgive everyone? It's, have I shown it? Okay. I love how that's, that's put very clearly. It's not, do I forgive everyone? Because that's a really hard question to answer. Um, should you? Sure. Uh, have I shown it? Okay. What is expected of you after partaking in Holy Communion? I should continue to grow in holiness, avoiding sin, showing love and forgiveness to all, and serving others in gratitude. Okay, so we'll break those down a little bit. I should continue to grow in holiness. How do you grow in holiness as a Christian? What's that? Yeah, practice is good. You know, I, I, love, uh, I, love, t I love millennials and, and Gen Zers and their memes because they, they really hit things on the, on the head sometimes. And my favorite little meme is, do better. Like, well, thanks for that encouragement. Like, look, the call to repentance that, that, that Christ gives us and that the church gives us is not do better. That's not it. It's, it's quite better than that by a lot. It's you can do better, and the reason you can do better is God will help you. Very simple. Like, God wants to give you grace for better. 
So what do you have to do? Receive grace. So like, <laughs> that's part of the joy of the Eucharist. It's like, I'm not even sure I want that entirely, but I wanted it a little bit, and I intend it, so I'm here. And so I'm asking God to give me grace for that end. Um, good thing to do. In fact, you can do better with God's help, right? So one of the things I would say that you should do is, is right before the confession, you know, we take a little break, and you should think about, like, what's the sin that's dogging you right now? What's the one that just is really hard to get over? And say, I intend a new life. And then you say, as you're walking up the aisle, and as you kneel down to receive communion, you say, Jesus, could you give me your grace right now to beat this thing that I'm having trouble with? Please. <laughs> Pretty good way to do it, actually. And I, I found great success with that. It's like, yeah, like God was like, yes, here, come take this, receive it. Okay, so growing in holiness is, is, a, is a wonderful thing. Um, avoiding sin, same thing. Showing love and forgiveness to all. If you come to the Eucharist with anger, resentment, uh, a lack of forgiveness, like there are very physical ways to actually display that forgiveness. It actually happens in the peace. Did you know that? So, like, we have the confession, and then we have the peace. And the idea is that if you've got somebody who is right in the midst of this church that you are angry with, that you're not forgiving, you might just go up to them and say, peace be with you. <laughs> That's it, right? It's, it's meant to be that. Um, and, uh, and, it, and it can be that. All right. Um, and serving others in gratitude. So uh, a big part of the Eucharist is uh, and, and this is what I would say about it, is um, let's say you get invited to dinner at Buckingham Palace. It'd be amazing, right? It'd be just amazing. So you, you go and you have dinner with the queen at Buckingham Palace, and it's awesome, and everything's great. It's not, I mean, everything's in its right place. And then as you're leaving, some homeless guy asks you for a dollar so you can buy a cheeseburger. And you say, no, I don't really have any cash. I'm here right now. I'm going to move on. Right. Is that a life of gratitude? It's like, no. Um, in fact, what you should do is go around the corner, and there's a, there's a wonderful quote by, by the Bishop of Zanzibar who successfully abolished slavery in Zanzibar, which was like where the major slave market in East Africa was, Tanzania. Um, Frank Weston. And it's this wonderful quote about, you've received Christ in the Eucharist, now go seek him in the poor. Okay. And, and the reason I say this is that we, we often get this backwards. It's like, because I've served the poor and because I've done all these nice things, I get to receive communion with Jesus. I've sort of attained that. That is actually not how Christians think. It's not how anyone who's done a darn bit of good for the poor thinks. Okay. They're almost always saying, like, I have eaten with the king of kings, I have eaten the king of kings, and now it's time to go out and show some generosity, right? Like, that's how they think. Um, all right. We good so far? All right, I think, I think that's it, but I would add one more thing to this, okay, because this, this is not complete. I mean, there's always something missing, and I look at it and think, ah, if only we could have gotten it in there before that. It's this. If you really want to see the grace of the Eucharist take root in your life, you have got to pray. Like, pray. <laughs> like, because this is, <laughs> when you are not in the middle of the Eucharist, you're still called to live in union with Christ. How do you do this outside of the Eucharist? Well, even in two. Prayer. Prayer. Always prayer. Okay, so the, the call here is to say, like, what you receive in the Eucharist is union with Christ, fellowship, um, being as one with his body and blood. Okay. Um, in fact, this is the thing that makes prayer possible. Okay. Um, I, I, love, I love the old church fathers, but, you know, they would always say, uh, or would often say to, to catechumens, those preparing for baptism, it's like, yeah, you can't pray yet. 
<laughs> they'd say, well, why? I don't want to pray. Like, they weren't teaching, you know, new Christians who hadn't been baptized yet how to pray. They taught them the Lord's Prayer so that they could pray it once they were baptized. Like, that's why they did it. What's being said here? Well, what's being said by them is, is basically this. If you are not an heir in Christ and you're not a member of his mystical body, how do you expect your prayers to be heard? It's like the Eucharist is the fuel behind the life of prayer. I'm serious about this. I'm telling you because I think you can benefit from it. But look, your initiative in making sure that you pray every day is not what makes prayer fruitful. Your discipline in prayer is not what makes prayer fruitful. What makes prayer fruitful is the grace of God and participation in, his bo- in, in the body and blood of Christ, in the mystical body of the church. The more you believe that, the more you actually say, like, I am a member of Christ. I am an heir of the kingdom of God. Like, you'll pray more. You really will. Like, because you'll say, hmm, I'm disturbed by what I just saw. What should I do about that? And if you think, like, I'm just a citizen, a lowly citizen. What am I supposed to do? No, Mm-mm. no. But if you say, I'm a member of the body of Christ, then what do you do? You pray. If somebody says, hey, uh, I'm having a lot of problems like in life lately, can, can you like, and, you, and you, you will not be dumbfounded if you get the Eucharist as to what to do. You'll know what to do. Because you'll say, I am a member of the mystical body of Christ and I'm going to pray for you right now. You see, like I am an heir of the kingdom, like I some I stand to inherit God. So what will you do? You say, let's talk to Dad. <laughs> you know, it's really simple, um, but but I think this is important because you know uh, um, we've we've really lost this fully orbed view of salvation, and and we've most lost it in our understanding of the Eucharist. Um, so just a, just a few thoughts there. All right, we'll pick up next week with confirmation. I know a number of you are thinking about confirmation, and that's great, uh, but we'll talk about what confirmation is and how it functions and, uh, and, and what grace is there uh, next week. Or not next week. Actually, we're not having catechesis next week because it's the thir- third Sunday of Advent. The fourth Sunday through the end of Christmas, we don't have catechesis. We will start in the middle of January. Uh, so be looking to the emails for when that's supposed to restart. But uh, next week, I'm just going to hang out in the parish hall and drink coffee and, you know, eggnog. So, <laughs> so enjoy. <laughs>